Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. We move out of the horror realm that we were in for October for the Class of 1999 series, but we're, we're still going to stay in some dark territory here with a film written by Andrew Kevin Walker. This was uh, basically his follow-up uh, screenplay to Seven and directed by Joel Schumacher coming off of the debacle that was Batman Robin. It is uh, 8mm, and joining me to uh, talk about the film today is writer and director Christopher Denunzio. Chris, thank you very much for joining me. No, thank you. Thanks for having me back, man. It's going to be fun. I I would I have to admit I there were this was the first time in over twenty years I've seen this I don't think I had seen it since theatrical I I was really kind of surprised by how I I kind of feel the same way about the movie but at the same time I I I couldn't there was a lot that I did not remember about the movie and uh, really um really thinking about it as it was um as it was unfolding and there there's so much about this that I like, but at the same time, given given how dark it goes, it's actually kind of surprising that to hear me say this, I, I didn't necessarily I feel like I I also kind of feel like maybe the movie could have been a bit darker and that probably would have been I more, agree more with interesting. You about that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually, I, I actually agree. I watched it a few times. I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it shortly after on DVD. And I forget why. I mean, I'm always into thrillers, so in dark subject matters in general. Um, but I remember liking it a lot. I remember reading a lot of bad things about it, and I remember and, and I revisited a lot of those reviews, and they still that stands with me today. Is that they were all someone who's either doesn't like this genre, um, who feels offended by the, the subject matter, or I feel like are too uppity and thought they were about it. If you just read them, they all sound like the snooty comments toward the subject matter they chose. Yeah. And I'm just like, it's a great, it's, you know, it's not something I enjoy, but it's a great subject matter. <laughs> and it's a dark world. You have these myths about snuff films. Mm. What a great opportunity to make a movie about, especially a thriller. Yeah, um, and I just felt like never got a chance. Like I don't think this is the most amazing thriller, but if you like thrillers, this is a really, I think it's a really good film, and really one to check out. But I really feel like from a critical response, it got kind of a bad rap. Yeah, um, because people were trying to be even back then. I think a little politically correct rather than what they actually thought the film was. And mm-hmm. my my, but yeah. I do darker. I the other day, and I said to myself. I thought they could have pushed some things, seeing as how um, it is a disturbing story. I, I just think it was one of those films where it probably could have just been NC-17 and they should have just done that. Yeah. No, and it's funny because of the fact that one of the things that... Uh, and, I mean, you you brought up the fact that it's, it's basically about this underground myth of the notion of snuff films existing. The idea of somebody putting on camera an actual murder and for profit for for sale yep. and for pleasure or whatever um it's kind of that next um it's it's kind of that next degree from 
you know, hardcore pornography. And that's something that comes yeah. up in the film. Uh, the, it was kind of funny because, and not to, I hate to kind of give away anything, but it, it's yeah. kind of funny that you and I are talking about this and eyes wide shut together <laughs> because of the fact that like they both kind of in, they both have subplots about powerful men involved with conspiracies yeah. that are really out of that deal with criminal behavior. And that's one of the things, and it was really kind of amazing that it's like, okay, so not only do we have another film, you know, because, I mean, the, the scene with the, the orgy scene in Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. I mean, based on what Sidney Pollock's character says at the end of that movie, you kind of believe, well, you know, it could be, it's very powerful men involved with uh, that orgy yeah. and, like, government officials and stuff like that. And and this this supposed snuff film has been found in the safe of a well-known billionaire and you know yep. his it's his widow who's trying to decide whether it is he, he she's the one who is um bringing Nicolas Cage in to dis, to see whether it is authentic or not yeah, and that's one thing I actually thought too was I would have liked to see more. Is you brought up a great point was the rich, powerful men thing. Yeah, and I feel like that's just something that kind of gets a little bit pushed to the side. It's there, mm -hmm. but it's actually a subject I, I like a lot because one thing you find out when you know a lot of people like to be worship the rich and the famous because they have money and stuff. Like that when you really dive in, they're a messed up group of people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a lot <laughs> and this is a, is, a, is a more extreme case, obviously it's fiction. Yeah. But uh, there is that. I always, I always like that because there is this kind of, uh, there is this kind of morbid obsession with certain things, or or this disturbance, disturbance in them that just kind of gets brushed off because oh, they make money, they're successful, so they're good people. Mm -hmm. And it's just like it's just the furthest from the truth. And this situation is one where it's like it's a fictional film, but you can. Can you see something being dug up like that? <laughs> right. Well, and, and to get to the film itself, to get to the uh, no. the 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 sort of one of the things that you and I both touched on the fact that it was it it's a pretty dark material. It's pretty dark material. Nah. Uh, it's but at the same time, it's also not the movie itself is not necessarily as dark as it probably could have played. I, one of the th yep. first things that really struck me about this is I I wonder if I feel like if this if if they basically given this cast to and this script to Darren Aronofsky like I, I feel like we could have gotten a movie along the lines of what we got with Requiem from a Dream for him in terms yeah of, and, and I sorry I think that's a good idea. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that was something to say who actually directed it. And even though uh, Schumacher is labeled the man who ruined Batman, <laughs> I think he, uh, you know, he does have some good credits to him, you know, and he is good. And it, it is yeah. interesting to see Nicolas Cage in it. And I think I was reading something like even back then they wanted Russell Crowe. Mm. It was supposed to be done more budget. I, I want to say it was something in the. They had a bunch of guys listed for this, but it was almost going to be more of that gritty look. Yeah. And somehow Cage pulled of it, and they did it. And I, I actually like Cage's performance in here. I know he's not the one where people. I don't think he, he was. He holds back a lot in a good way. 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I I agree with that, and it's and, and it's funny because the, he had this and Bring Out the Dead in 1999, and yeah. like in both movies, he's he's more subdued throughout most of the movie, and then there's a certain point where in the story where he's kind of let off the leash, and you see yeah. the more manic, uh, like Mandy, you know, like his performance in Mandy, uh, Nicholas oh. Cage come out and. Really, and and that's one of the things that I really like about it, and I think that's where this film gets a lot of its energy. It's like, and you're right, Schumacher does have some solid credits, especially when it comes to thrillers. Yeah. Like, I mean, he did a couple of the better John Grisham thrillers. Uh, Phone Booth was kind of an entertaining movie. I mean, he's... I really like Phone Booth. Yeah, I mean, he's done solid work, but, I mean, I don't know, for some reason, I... I don't know. For some reason, he just and I know uh, Walker ended up disowning the film because of the fact that uh, Schumacher was sort of signing with the studio as far as trying to light up the film in terms of the the tone and the content. But at the same time, it's like it's still a pretty dark film from a visual standpoint as well as a narrative standpoint. Yeah, I know, and I wonder if the lightening up was, if they didn't do that, like what we mentioned before, like we both thought, like, surprisingly, uh, being so dark, we thought it still could have been pushed. I wonder if it actually hit that button and they just, they went back. You know, I mean, it has to be. Like, what else, I mean, what else were they doing? They were cutting, they were most likely cutting violent and, and graphic, hardcore graphic sex or something like that. Yeah. Which is like, weird to say you want that in there, but I mean, it does, it all, it all plays to the story. And I think the more disturbing it gets, you realize, like, what the hell this detective is getting himself into. You're just, you know, as the more dark it gets, you're just like, whoa, where, where is this world? And, and that's why I think more of it would have been okay, because it's really appropriate to the story they're telling. And it just, it's just, it just gets, it gets dark really fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the funny, and, and the thing about this is, is that, um, you know, we, we talked about Cage a little bit, and how he feels kind of reeled in, and it's like, they're they're trying to portray him as like this this family man with Catherine Keener and their newborn yeah. baby and stuff like that. But it's like you almost don't really believe that that's the type of because of the the fact that it's Cage. You don't really believe that aspect of it of yeah of his character. So it's it's one of those things where um you know, you almost wish like that subplot wasn't even in the movie where it's like, he's just a private detective. He's, you know, yeah. he might have a, you know, he's still got the reputation and stuff like that, but he's also not necessarily afraid to go to, you know, he, he's not afraid to tiptoe into uh, darker ways of getting into, um, getting to the heart of a case and yeah it's funny you say that because i think well one i really like Catherine keener yeah and she but she but i but i if they did cut something all that i mean then i think what they were trying to do taking a shot of dark here is they were really just trying to uh really humanize him really make him feel that that man having that everyday man feel it's like you could be caught up in this situation type yeah. thing kind of like we're hardcore where it's someone's daughter it's like your daughter you know which are very mm -hmm. similar films about that um, but they, but, you know, so they try to push it. I don't think it's bad, but I bet you, but at the same time, I think if they did 
cut some of that or only gave us a little a little less of a glimpse because it, it sometimes does feel like it's a little push and they could have there's so many other areas where they could have filled in more or or yeah. shown more at least and and I think some of that could have you know we we got it from the first couple of scenes and some phone calls mm-hmm. you know but, so I think they still could have made a little bit more balance that's that's one of the things I think I have to have a critique on with is is, yeah. is being able to like back on that and show more in other areas. Yeah, and one of the and and one of the things that's really great about uh, Andrew Kevin Walker's screenplay in this is that it's sort of the same type of thing he did in Seven, where he's essentially he he's essentially um, proposing a moral dilemma in terms of yep. just how yeah. how much are you willing to get your hands dirty to do what you're supposed to be doing. And that's yeah. that's kind of the thing that he's that's what he did with seven. That's what um, he's doing here with eight millimeter. And it's one of those things where it's like I do, you know, his the ideas he has for a script here is really interesting. And it is the fact that it deals with urban legends and stuff like that, and this specific myth, and that he's not afraid to explore this type of the the darker side but at the same time you have a character like Joaquin Phoenix's character in the movie where it's like he's he's part of that world but he's just removed from it he's removed just enough from it to where yeah. he he understands that after a certain point you're it's kind of a point of no return yeah and it's like that you said point no return because I, I was kind of wondering if he he if he actually thinks he's just not removed enough from or if he actually really just is in it and it's just him thinking because he's got so many connections and when they go to some of those places that they're like oh hey and he's like hey how's it going it's yeah. like they seem to like i i they've explained it in some scenarios where how he was just saying you know you took the job then all of a sudden you're caught up in it and blah 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 but um, at the same time, I'm wondering if he, he still has that fantasy of being a band. Not fantasy, but it's hard to make it up in L.A. He's out in L.A. trying to be in this band. He broke up. He's taking a job. And it's like, but is his mind still with his passion as a band, not realizing he's fully immersed in this world? Yeah. Um, so I was wondering that. <laughs> yeah, and I think this was probably the first performance that I really noticed uh, Joaquin Phoenix in. Uh, oh, first I noticed. I think I, I officially and, saw him. And he really does make an immediate impact in the movie. Yep. And, uh, you know, he, he has a very natural report. <laughs> Cage probably... <laughs> He goes, he tells him, you need a battery-operated vagina? Yeah. And he's like, no, I'll pass. <laughs> well, I hate you being a sit bro, you need the battery. But it's still the way he does it. Like, it's just cracking me up. It's supposed to be funny, but it was like, that whole first scene's great. And then that's when he finds out, like, reading a... A book or something. I forget what book he was reading, but it clearly uh, wasn't reading. In cold blood, the yeah. Capote, Capote. So like, yeah. realizes that's clever, which is probably which is obviously why Nicholas Cage was like, "All right, there's a a more edgy, intelligent guy working in a porn shop. He might know a thing or two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the thing the thing that's great about him is that you you really feel like, and especially now having seen their careers progress over the past two decades, you really kind of feel like. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Nicolas Cage have this similar energy to them where it's like yeah. they just can't play a normal character. There has to be something more to 
that character yeah. has to be something a bit peculiar about that character to really uh, get the best out of them in a movie. I can see that. It was, he, he did great. That, that, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever seen Queen Phoenix. Yeah. Or at least it's like it is the first time I officially took notice of him, like you were saying. Yeah. Uh, but he, he was great in that scene. And then who, but, um, you know what I absolutely love is the guy who plays Dino. <laughs> oh, uh, Peter Stormare. Every time he's, even he does like a little appearance. I seen him once at this theater, local theater. The film was just whatever, but it was like about, I forget the name of it, but it's literally about some like, like some guy has an age, he's trying to be a clown. It's one of those stereotypical kind of uh, indie films, but it was like this little unknown thing. And like, he still just pops out and you're like, he's just amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, even, even in, even his one scene in Minority Report is just absolutely bonkers and just wonderful to watch because of the fact that he, he, he isn't afraid to go really far over the top when it comes to whether it's the accent, whether it's the visual way he presents the character. He, he's just not afraid to go to those places, which is hilarious be- considering the character he played in Fargo, which is how I first came to know him. Oh, that's funny. I I've seen him in so many things. I just I mean, he's just always so different. He's just always he's and he would he still feels natural. Like if he's like over the top or wacky, there's just still this like really like natural case. There's a like good timing the way he does things. Just yeah. it's just I don't know. He he's got a good like film sense. I just feel like he has a good when he's on stage or he's on he's on set. Mm-hmm. Like he just has understands where he's supposed to be and just what to do. And he just he just. He's just so creative, but I like I love the character Dino Velda. I thought it was absolutely perfect for that type of that yeah. type of guy and everything. I don't know if we're getting too far ahead going in with Dino. No, that's all right. <laughs> I mean, we're we're kind of going all over the place with the, uh, the with, with with the story with the narrative, and I mean, and you know, we're talking about the cast, and I mean, there this this has a really good one. I forgot I'd forgotten Catherine Keener was in this. You have normal. Yeah, for one scene. <laughs> and then we and also we obviously we got James Gunn. Yeah. Who's just yeah. fantastic. Well, did, I can't, was Sopranos, did that air in 99? I can't remember. I'm sorry? Did Sopranos air in 99? I yes, can't remember it, if that was Sopranos started in 1999, yeah. So this... this okay. So that was his big Again, very different from... Uh, he in uh, this Eddie Poole, I think it was, and he, um, you know, it's not like he's a tough guy reserved. He's he's more of a loudmouth scumbag working in the porn industry, you know. Yeah, and he just is, he's just, he's fantastic in that role. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and the funny the the funny thing is, while we're talking about the cast, it's like I can't help but wonder what Spike Jones feels about this movie because he's worked with like pretty much every major character, every major actor in this movie. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Cause he, <laughs> he had Catherine Keener and being John Malkovich. He had Nicholas Cage in adaptation. He had James Gandolfini in where the wild things are. And then oh, he had Juan right. King Phoenix in, in her. Yep. And, oh, wow. That's and crazy. once I pick together, like, <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, that's that's so funny. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know, man. And then also they have um, who was I gonna say? Um, I like I also I, I you know what I liked about the the, the beginning was he's going through the whole um, it's going to the airport, all that situation. Is it is he going home first? Is that like how it started off? I think he was going home getting, first. Yeah. Yeah, there's something he stops by, and we realize he works for like Paul, like higher politician. Yeah. He's clearly like a high, like a, a very like in demand uh, private eye. There, he's not yeah. in front of the something to get off right from the beginning too. Yeah. And that's when it goes into his home life with Kathy and Kim and the baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like. I think they did a good. Work. I like the way. I also like a lot of the way um, the film was shot too. Um, certain things like even like riding in the car, mm-hmm. you see certain like car coming up. You just tell they're using like a wide, like a um, a telephoto lens and stuff like that. How some of it, I think they shot Super Thirty Five, um, so it's got that really nice film look. I thought they should have done some scenes or some throwback, like all eight millimeter. Yeah, <laughs> like why? <laughs> like, I know they have the actual film, but like mm-hmm. they should have just done. They should have just done. Like something could have been more artsy with that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because of the fact that it's like, I, yeah, I mean, visually speaking, this movie looks really, it looks really good. It, but for it's, you know, it's, it's a little too, you know, it's, it try it's trying to be gritty. It's trying to be grimy. And yeah. I mean, I don't know, you know, and the weird thing is, it's like, I don't know if the camera, I don't know if the lighting is necessarily as gritty as the movie wants to be. I feel like there's still like a mainstream studio look to the movie. You know, it, it still feels yeah. like a mainstream movie when this really feels like it should be an indie. <laughs> yeah. Because I do think I do think it's very polished, like the editing, the way it was the way it was shot. It is it is like I did like the lighting, but then also when you get to L.A., there's just like the pops of color that just come there too. Yeah, kind of like even though L.A. can be gritty, we've, there's been a bunch of stories told that gritty oh, yeah. L.A. Stories, but there is the way they shot it and the sections they use. You yeah. kind of you kind of emerge from this darkness almost in this light for a brief moment of time in L.A. No, and and I do I do like that aspect of it when, yeah. when he's in L.A. It's like you know how, you know it it does look brighter, does look nicer, and then as he's going further and further down into this world, it it gets grittier, gets it gets yeah, yeah, it gets see, darker. Think, so it's like you do he, have that contrast. But I think they were trying to keep because even like the so when he's talking with Joaquin outside of the porn shop. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to look gritty and there, but it's so hard when there's a lime green wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like the colors, like it's popping, but it's like, and I know it's the back of a porn shop, but it's still, you're just like, you just, I don't know, it looks nice. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, we, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the cinematography, like the music by Michael Dana in this movie, I, I like it. And but the thing is, it, it's it's an interesting sounding score, but it's yeah. also it also feels like it's too busy. Feels like it's trying to keep the energy up a little too much. It's trying to it it's almost like it's trying to pull the weight of the film with it to a certain extent. 
Yeah, I thought the, like the chanting type of stuff or whatever it was. It was. I like it too, but it was a little contrasty in a way. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, so it, yeah, I was I was a little fifty fifty with that too because because I really do like it, but I did at the same time like I said felt it was contrasty and felt but. I, but at the same time, I don't know. I like it. Like that. That's, again, going back to the LA. The first time to do the LA, that was like a very big kind of out there. And I didn't know if it was just supposed to be that kind of almost. I don't know. A lot of times when you hear kind of more, I'm, I'm saying chanting, but I don't have the right word for it. Yeah. Um, but the way they use it, it almost has more of a very like basic kind of very pure type of sound. And I don't know if they were still trying to play off of that with like the, the animalisticness of, of what the hell. Uh, is going on in, in this world and stuff like that. If they were trying to to be savage, isn't the right word, but <laughs> lost my, can't articulate my feeling on that one. But it is. But as you can see, I'm mixed. Yeah, well, I, I and I think that's one of the things that's interesting about this movie and why it's why it's a good one to talk. Excuse me, why it's a good one to talk about as far as uh, this year in general because it came out shortly after uh, Payback the Mel Gibson oh, yeah. vehicle. And, I mean, that's another one that, and that's another one that, and, you know, the I, I talked about that one on the podcast for uh, that episode where it's like, that one went through some post-production issues as well where the movie was kind of basically taken out of Brian Helgeland's hands. And so this the version we saw in theaters was not necessarily his preferred cut. Uh, and then if you see his cut, which is available, it's a much different cut. It's it's similar in tone, but it is a little bit darker. Uh, it's a little bit rougher around the edges, and you know it's I and I I think Andrew Kevin Walker's talked about um, how he'd kind of like to see another pass taken at this film, and even though I I guess there is a sequel to this movie. Um, that had yeah. none of the people involved with it. <laughs> yeah, it must have. It must have did enough. I can't remember how it did at the box office, but it must have did enough in sales that caused enough buzz where it was worthy. It had one of those type of sequels. Let's, let's slap the name on it and make something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, no, I, mean, I, I don't want someone to do it. You know, just tell them, call me. Well, I think the hook itself is enough to. I, I can kind of see where somebody would say, oh, that had an interesting hook. Let's do yep. a sequel to it. Because, I mean, you do kind of set up this idea by the end of the movie that there are more people than just the group of people at the end involved with this. Yeah, and there are more people right, who people know too. this. Because it's like, listen, you got this guy who's... who you know, pseudo artist here. He thinks he's making like art, but he's really making hardcore fetish porn. Yeah. Um, which whatever you could shoot it in ways. Like there was the seventies people. There's a lot of filmmakers that used to shoot into porn before they went in because it was actually practice. Yeah. But you got the guy who's taking commission to do these type of films, clearly disturbed. Um, so what's, it's not hard to see how this type of person got connected with this type of person for a large sum of money, did something evil. Mm. That happened again. There's no indication that that's dead just because, uh, we won't go too far, but just because how, how things are wrapped up or how they are. Yeah. Uh, there's still this whole world. It almost, in a way, not as potent, not as punchy, 
but kind of how um, in uh, The Wire, how that first season ends, and then you just have, like, you think they've got all these criminals caught, and hey, we just made a big thing, and then you see how everything still exists even without them. Yeah. And I have a similar feeling there. It was just like, yeah, you got this guy who did this terrible thing. You, you know, you're trying to, you think everything's nice, and you might be out of it, but it's like, there's still this thing that's going on that, you know, the machine's still moving, you yeah. know, and the possibility of this happening again is, you know, from what I have known, it's, it's not something, it is more of an urban legend. Um, I know there was a documentary out there called, like, I think it was Snuff, a, a documentary of killing on camera, hmm. um, which I thought was pretty good. I, I think, again, another thing that got kind of trashed, um, but I'll ruin it for some people, so close their ears. If, uh, plug your ears if you want to hear this. Um, it's not to the end of the documentary where you actually realize that someone might have actually seen the film. Yeah. But everyone else's interview was the thing who's in there just clearly has, comes out of the end that it's just really to them. It, it never happened. They've never come across yeah. it. And there's one guy that makes a very compelling case about it. And that's really all you really need to know that the possibility of something out there that's happening. But again, someone like Adino, there's always another one. And it's just a very big world, a very dark world. Um, mm. Even when it is on it's a big industry, porn industry. Yeah, you know, it's not just that people just see right on the internet. There's a, there's a very big dark world, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you know the the thing is, it's like we we're talking about this the the world that eight millimeters presenting, and it's like it yep. it's just one of those things where it's like this. I just don't see how this. I I like this movie. It's an entertaining movie. It's an entertaining movie, quote unquote, because of the fact that I mean, it's it's a solid thriller. It's a solid suspense movie. Yeah. You know, it's got really interesting characters. It's got really good performances, but at the same time, it it's it's also very mainstream. It's a it's way too mainstream for the type yeah. of subject matter. I mean, you have that end scene with the uh, with one of the people in the video, uh, where which is a very perfunctory, uh, very cliched thriller, you know, fight between two ca- two characters that you know is probably only going to end up one way, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just way too. It's it's not suspenseful. It starts out kind of suspenseful but it doesn't really uh continue well, I, that way too long yeah i thought it also went kind of suspense and almost turned like the way it recovers a little bit from that is it almost kind of turns more into a revenge film yeah it's kind of three quarters the thriller and the last quarter it kind of and it feels this more revenge type of thing which i mean i know you can kind of loop them into the same thing but really Really, it takes this more search and discovery and this whole thrilling aspect, and then it, it, it just because it's almost like payback. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing that the the thing that part makes it that um, that way is probably more than anything is the introduction of the mother of the uh, girl who is supposedly killed in the video, and you have that one really good scene where he goes to meet her. And to, you know, try to learn some things about the home life and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he finds her diary and stuff like that. 
and then you have this this really um this this good connection between the two of them that culminates in uh in a letter in in a moment where yeah. Nicolas Cage is basically saying I can make the people who did this to your daughter pay. Do I have yes. permission to do this? And and you always I'll continue. Sorry. No, that's fine. Go ahead. I, I was because uh, I was I was thinking about you brought up the whole um, how this script does tell have this moral dilemma. And one thing I thought was interesting was like when he meets them all, it, wasn't it something like uh, he tells them. With some sort of bureau, your FBI agent was supposed to call you. Didn't he call you? Yeah. And she's like, no, you're obviously lying. But he did a couple of those things. And you wonder, like, he is telling a lot of lies and kind of intruding in someone's life. Mm-hmm. And he is doing good. But where does that bark on, you know, embark on the fact that he is just, he's still manipulating someone to get what he wants? Yes, he's doing something good. But, like, who is he? He's actually doing something good and, in, in you know. He was trying to find this girl and do it, but it still, it still was interesting the way he went about his business. And I guess you're a PI, you know, as far as detective, you gotta, you gotta figure out what you have, you know. But yeah, yeah, and it really does harken back to uh, old film noir, where it's like now. I mean, it's it's he's obviously not like if if I were to compare him to say one of Humphrey Bogart's private detective characters, I would say he's a little bit more Phil Marlowe than Sam Spade. If you're going to go that yeah. comparison, now it's not exactly a fair comparison to a certain, to a certain extent, but I mean, you have that moral, um, you, you have the, the thing that's great about that character. I think the thing that makes that character so interesting in a movie like this is that, you know, it with film noir, it's this whole idea of, the darker side of human behavior and yeah. how that um, manifests manifests in itself when it comes to uh, crime narratives. And you see people and you have characters like Phil Marlowe who are ultimately trying to do the right thing, but are not afraid to bend, bend the rules, morally speaking in Getting that and the his in Cage's interactions with the mother is a really good example of that. Yep. And you know, so when when she writes him a letter later on in the film and tells him, it's like I think you and I are the only ones who ever really cared about her. It's like that actually it rings true because of the fact that yeah. what you've seen out of Cage's character, he did genuinely care about the fact that this girl died or supposedly yeah. died and he wanted to find out why. Yeah, it was, but what, you know, but in, in just, yeah, and you see it, and it consumes him. And then it's one of those things too, where then I guess there you got the Schumacher playing back to the family and stuff like that, where it's, he's so consumed by this truth that, you know, he keeps pushing off stuff with his family and that kind of gets, that's kind of that other element is he's breaking that apart is his home life falling apart because of it, which is pretty classic detective in a way too, where yeah. you, you're so up in your work that you, you, you block other people out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He, he, but he was also, but I like, I like that comparison. I like comparisons of film noir in that in general, like that kind of detective 
dark, especially again, we're going back with the way the lighting is a lot of that kind of low light, single light source type of lighting. Uh, they do have a lot of that in there as well. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, but it's interesting the way his character goes through it. Like, I like the way, um, yeah, he has that kind of that. Again, you always vibe with him because you know, in the end, it's like he's trying to find this girl, right? And he's yeah. trying to find this girl. And he, like you said, he's the only, he's more, his, uh, her mother thinks the only one, the only two who cares about him. So, like, in the end, you're like, you totally forgive him for doing that. But I just think it's a good question to, like, bring up, like, when he's, you know, like, what happens if he, he, he faked his way into this mom's, in this mom's world and all yeah. he brought up was bad medicine. And he didn't get that. He didn't get, because he does find a, a diary that someone overlooked mm-hmm. in the back of the talk. Yeah. But like, if he didn't find that piece and he didn't do that, he would have just caused this disturbance, really. Mm-hmm. Dug up, if you will. But obviously it doesn't turn out like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's funny because of the fact that, like, we, you know, we, we talked about the fact that this old, this this whole narrative starts with an old woman, the widow of a billionaire, uh, he has found a videotape of a a an alleged snuff film in her her husband's um, private safe, and she, you know, and she wants to keep it very discreet. She wants to keep it very uh, on the down low, which we completely understand, and. She she seems to have genuine concern over a she wants to know whether the woman the girl is alive or dead and b she kind of wants to know who she is but by the end of the by the end you realize that her concern is not so much predicated on um her moral her wanting to know the truth but to re to think but to know whether how this truth is going to harm you know her standing and their standing as uh, absolutely powerful and that's actually one thing i thought it was always uh i think i was mentioning something before about playing more on this these type of rich people because that how even though she shows some signs of empathy and all that, it's there's still this world where it's like the reputation. The reputation is more important than if this actually happened or not. You know, yeah. Like if she went somewhere else, it would have been whatever. But there is this whole thing like we can't have we can't have ourselves look that way when it's like in this situation. You're like, well, who would want to be involved with a snuff film? Totally yeah. makes sense. But it, I, I think, I think with that society and a more of a rich society, it goes beyond that. It could just be something that was just an embarrassing thing that someone did, whatever. That's yeah. life. But it is, it is a different world, and that's why I was hoping they would explain a little bit more. Maybe I mean, I guess you don't need more of what you get out of who this billionaire was. Yeah. But that type of world too, where it is really so superficial, really about. Um, you know your reputation what you do your presence you know the bullshit you know kissing ass to someone type of work well and the uh and and the uh personal attorney played by i think it was anthony held in the movie i mean he he says it. it's like why did you know when nicholas cage tries to get him to say why did he do this and you know he says it simply because he could yeah and i like it because then there's another thing with machine yeah. And he just says, wanted to. 
And what I love about both of them is I feel like some audience are going to feel really empty. That's an empty answer. Mm-hmm. And that, but one that scares the hell out of me yeah. because one is capable of that just play because they can or because they're bored, but is actually, um, and actually the whole fascination with this reminds me very much of just people's fascination with serial killers in general, you know, mm-hmm. that taboo, subject, that idea of like the unthinkable. Um, but it also like, uh, they actually had some of those audio recordings on Netflix right now. They had this, uh, the Ted, Ted Bundy. Bundy. Yeah. Talk. What's great about that. And, and I've heard, I've heard Bundy say this before was the fact that he's on tape saying like, listen, you can't tell like someone you love or something like that. The next day they can be completely demonic. Yeah. And it's funny cause there is something there that causes them to do that. But what it is, we don't really know is I, in very separate, but, it's similar to like when someone is suicide, we don't know what that demon really is. There seems to be something there, but what it actually is. And, and bringing it into this world, it's just like, I always, in, in some things I like to do in films as well, is that almost unnecessary violence. Like there's just this, sometimes shit just happens. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a guy who really wants to just, he just says, this would be interesting. I have money. Let's see this. And it's completely detached from reality. But again, being this rich elite world, you kind of are attached from reality. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's always funny when you see a politician, they're like, he's more like us. Like he got a free ride everywhere he went. He doesn't know what milk cost. He is not, he is completely detached from reality. Don't let him make rules. Yeah. Um, I, I just, but you know, you just, you, you just have that kind of that world. And it's just, it's just, it's very, it's just to me that it's scary because there is people out there that just have an urge to kill are, are so bored that they want to cause or trouble and they have the money to do it. And it seems like kind of an empty answer, almost so simple, but really I think there's so much more behind that simple statement. Right. And you brought up machine earlier yeah. and the thing, and another line of his as just, it's, it's so simple and it's so powerful in this case is, <sighs> is during that scene. And, you know, he, he takes off the mask a machine's mask and you know we've we've seen who this guy really is and he, machine simply says it's like who were you expecting the devil yeah yeah <laughs> it's like no that's not how it works yeah it's always it's always the case right they always see the guy who might seem crazy or he's on edge and this is the guy we focus on and he's worried and then meanwhile it's the other guy that's that's going about his business and smart that <laughs> Yeah. Blends right in. He's the guy. <laughs> well, and the thing is, it's like he's he's he he he's got. Um, he, I mean, he he has personal reasons for why he does what he's doing, and it's like, yeah. like, like you said, I mean, it's it's not just it's it's not just out of maliciousness that he's doing it. He's doing it because of the fact that it's like, hey, you know, I mean, this 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 is me. <laughs> I feel something. I like it. You know, it's, uh, it's sick. It's hard to understand, but I think that's also personally one of my fascinations with things this dark and serial killers and stuff like that is one, I don't understand it. So trying to understand it is always something, you know, like I don't like no matter how angry I can, I can never really harm someone (laughs) like that. And it's like, so it's always, I try to, there's, there is always still that, no matter how much is explored, it's still very taboo in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, you know, and it's just, and then when you do find out, 
the idea is sometimes it's not this big connection of all this type of stuff. It's just this simple man who had some sort of feelings. Why? Don't know. I mean, going back to seeing some of these, when you see some of these serial killers being talked, some of them who actually open up still can't get to that core reason of what it is. But there's something there. And it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to explore. Well, and I mean, think about John Doe in Seven. I mean, you know, you that that's you know, you you look at that, and I mean, y- what you get the impression is, it's like he's just a guy who he he saw the ugliness in the world, and he wanted to turn he he wanted to turn things on its head with this really prolonged. Um, dark mission statement of this is how shitty the world is. And this is, this is what, you know, the world, these people seem like victims, but yeah, they're not, they're, they're, they're not is here's why I don't consider them victims. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is, that, that's such a great, like, that's such a great moral. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it still comes down to it. It's like, it's still too far, but it's just like, it's again, is someone thinking that way too, right? You can always, it's, it's, it's easy to see how someone can slip into that thought and that again. And that's why I also bring up the whole Nick Cage pretending to be this and that to get what he wants. It's like in the end game, he really is doing the right thing. He's yeah. trying to is trying to help it's like but it's also not that far from someone who's just manipulating someone to hurt them right it's different but it's but there's still some similarities to it and it's uh i mean you see it too when you brought politics earlier where you got one side yelling at the other yeah and you end up to listen to me like oh wow you guys have the same poison yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you a cup of coffee you might actually enjoy each other's time. exactly <laughs> Well, um, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about the movie before we wrap up? Yeah, so I really, so I love the way, like I said, I love, I love the way how it comes into this your typical thriller. We how we find out, uh, and it's the way they, you know, how he's just this kind of more upscale, I guess you'd say, private detective, and how it just brings you into this really, really dark world. And I really like in the end how. It becomes this this thriller and this mystery of this mission of finding out if this is actually real. And then when we get some answers, which we which it seems like she definitely clearly she was she was murdered. Then that like we have that phone call with the, the asking for the permission. Then Nicholas Cage becomes this kind of you know just vengeance. He just gets turned on and he tries to take care of everything. And that's where I think it flips into this revenge film. Yeah, I like moment it kind of it kind of. Uh, sets but even when it all ends it's still a very unsettling piece and i just think it's a like we we're saying earlier i think it could have went darker i think they could have showed a little bit more but i think if you're someone who's really into thrillers especially if you like a lot of old darker noir things i think it's it's a, still a really good film to watch yeah and I really, I really and i like your you know i'm not a person who's for remakes or doing anything but I would say it is a great candidate to get redone again. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way it kind of did. If someone saw hardcore eight millimeter, you could see how eight millimeter respond. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't any influence, but there is a lot of similarities there. They still both stand as their own film. Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, it's a really polished, it moves really well. 
Um, all the characters do such a great job with it. Um, it's a, it's it's a solid dark thriller. And then again, like what I was saying in the beginning too, I really feel this film got a really bad rap because some people felt they were above the subject matter, and it just yeah, it's it's, it's understandable. It's very disturbing. It's very dark. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's you know it was well it was well made film, and and I enjoyed it. No, I I would definitely agree with that assessment. And I mean, I I think if if you're turned off by if you're repelled by this subject matter, I mean, I that's not necessarily a bad thing. Not at all about a movie like this because of the fact that it's like it it's ultimately one of the things that's interesting about movies is the way that they show us something about ourselves and our moral compass. And I mean, this, this is, even though it's a very, it's, it's kind of a very um, basic thriller in a lot of ways and a very traditional film noir. It also does have some interesting ideas about morality, about the idea of right and wrong of how people toe that line between right and wrong and what it says about them given the direction that they go with it. And that's, that's one of those interesting things that, and it's, I, I, if, if you had asked me before I rewatched this for the podcast, I wouldn't have necessarily told you that that was something I was thinking about watching the movie. But in this discussion and in watching the movie, yeah, that's kind of what this this movie has to offer. Now there's um now little fun facts. So when he's going to Machine and he's in his house, Machine has a bunch of Glenn Danzig posters. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually a fan of Danzig. Danzig has a video, and I, I'm blanking on the song. It's it's off of one of the I can't remember if it's second, third, or fourth album. It's in that it's in that range but if someone looks it up like an snm video it literally has that almost demo velvet-esque type of music video where there's a lot of black and white looks like it's shot on a low budget film <laughs> with a lot of like little snm stuff some pretty graphic um but i thought that was pretty cool and the other thing that i really like about dino velvet's character is, besides just the phenomenal performance was was how they chose to shoot it i, I learned film on eight millimeter mm-hmm. so that was a so it's always a cool thing but I've also seen, not to the graphic extent, not in pornography, but very similar things shot like, you know, very, very, very graphic kind of like this kind of art world. And um, it's a good, it's a good, all that really hit really well because, you know, one thing I used to love about working with 8mm is, is the manipulation of it. Yeah. So you could do things like open up the film and then close it. You get all these crazy sunlight uh, leaks in it. Um, I used, I've uh, used bleach on my film to strip the colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, then just drawing on it, scratching it, like is a really big thing. Um, yeah. I had to say, the one time working in film, like I always like to think of myself more on the art side of things. But working with like eight millimeter, you do you do really feel like an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Way that you're just so hands on with it. Uh, some cases you, you can develop your own film; it's not very hard. But I, I just thought they did a re- also that type of character, thinking you know he's this arrogant artist in a way and um using connections like with danzig like also at the same time because he has that background i forget the song too i think the song apex twins that they kept playing Hmm. which is a crazy disturbing video as well like little children running around with like old men face on (laughs) (laughs) like but it but they did little things i thought was like 
those little set decoration things that could, you know, like the Danzig posters and stuff yeah. like that. And then the little things that like Dino would have done and, and where he was. Because that's another thing too. There's a there's a big um underground scene of filmmakers too that still to this day shoot a lot of eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter, and some of the stuff is very artsy and not very well recepted at other festivals. Maybe it's just too experimental. Right. Um, but you, but New York was one of those places where there'd be, you know, you, someone might have a little studio space down in some basement, makes a lot of films there, or they'd be screening films type of that way. Too. Um, so there's just like, there's a lot of like cool connections that way too. I, I always, uh, I always liked been um, definitely something if someone's watching it, pay attention and look and, and type up eight millimeter films and yeah. experiment films. There's some really cool stuff out there. Okay. Not necessarily porn. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, on that note, yeah. uh, that seems like an interesting way to wrap this up. Uh, I love it. Christopher, thank you very much for joining me today. As oh, thank you for having me. I'd like to thank Christopher Denunzio for joining me to talk about 8mm. There was a lot more to that movie uh, than I expected when we first decided to uh, talk about it. And I hope you felt that way as well as we were um, discussing the movie. I. Uh, that's that's basically um, the rest of this year is going to be crazy busy as far as uh, as <clears throat> as far as class of nineteen ninety nine episodes. You'll probably be getting like two or three a week. I I really wish I got more of these done earlier in the year, but it is what it is. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about one of the. Um, a, an unusual football movie from an iconoclastic filmmaker, one of the most beautiful animated films ever made, some of the big uh, Oscar contenders of the year, and may more uh, as we continue to uh, move through the class of 1999. This is Brian Scuttle. Hit me up on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonicsima. Uh, you'll get looks at my early um, published um, mini reviews from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And this past, and in October, I wrote a piece comparing and contrasting the two versions of it that are available. And I hope you enjoy that. Uh, for now, this is Brian Scuttle. Thank you very much for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you.